Hello, and welcome to Effective Conversations with Yael Feiner. Each episode is a unique journey into a polarizing topic where we go beyond the facts, explore the underlying emotions, and learn something new about ourselves. Today I'm here with Garth. He has an ongoing conflict with his childhood friend about climate and conspiracy. The question we will explore is how to coexist when people don't listen to each other. What is important for you to get? With the conversation with him, what would you like to happen? Yes, well, you know, I think the most important thing is to learn from our dialogues, our conversations. For me, I am always approaching the discussion of controversial subjects like religion and and climate change, denial and conspiracy theories. I believe it's it's important that we have this ability to discuss them in society, but I want it to be a learning experience between uh, two parties. So both of us can come away saying that, gee, we learned a little bit more because we listened to someone else. But, you know, unfortunately, it's it, that's the art of conversation and dialogue, and I think that's often what's so missing in modern society. But I, I just want to learn and enjoy learning with others because most of what we know really just comes from our friends and family and our conversations that we have. The research shows that. So I think it's very important to have this open dialogue and the ability to say that, look, I can question you and you can question me, but that won't destroy our relationship. And we're always open to new ideas. However, it seldom turns out that way. But you do have an open conversation with him. It didn't uh, ruin your, your relationship, right? Well, no, I'm, af- you know, I'm afraid not, um, because those kinds of issues have kind of cannibalized the relationship. It's gotten down to the point whereby, you know, I feel he's pushing my buttons. And in other words, uh, being a little bullying about that behavior. And uh, whereas I just wanted open dialogue. And I know it, it's hard for me to, after hearing the same arguments over and over for over, well over a decade, you know, I find it's very hard for me to be patient when I'm hearing the same things because I'm, I'm kind of a science geek, a rational guy, and I believe in evidence-based inquiry. But if someone uh, rejects the very the fundamental basis of evidence-based discussions, then I just don't know what to do, and I'm afraid it brings the worst out of me. And uh, I've had to kind of limit all conversations surrounding any of those topics. But unfortunately, that's often what he wants to talk about most. And, mm, you know, haven't we right. found that with social media now? People have changed. I never used to have this problem. Years ago, growing up, I never encountered people who would be so dogmatic and absolutist in their knowledge that they're right and so right. close to other opinions. But... This has been created in society by, I think, a lot of very nasty actors on social media, like Russian trolls, and the fossil fuel industry is, is certainly, it's in the public record of how well they funded this disinformation campaign. So that makes it hard on a lot of relationships. Somebody just changes and they, people will say on Twitter, well, I just lost my dad. We used to have a loving relationship, but now all he wants to talk about is conspiracy theories the deep state and uh, global uh, uh, warmalists trying to destroy the world for them. So it's yeah. just, you know, what can you do? <laughs> well, this is what we'll explore, I guess. There are things one can do. Yeah. Yeah, so you're feeling pushed out of your comfort zone and you're getting triggered by his responses. 
does he feel the same about what you have to say? Can he listen patiently to what you have to say? No, he's, he's really not open to any kind of he's evidence. Not open. I can show him the best papers from the best science journals in the world like Nature. That doesn't change a thing. So, you know, that's very, very, uh, very frustrating for anyone. And I have to admit, people, uh, these people are often bullies about their ideas. If you've ever been cornered by an oil executive who's had too much to drink, you can know this is very intimidating behavior too. It's my way or something my bad's way. gonna happen to you. <laughs> I'm a big guy, I'm not easily intimidated, so. <laughs> yeah, that sounds very frustrating. And how long does it go in this kind of conversation between you? When, when did it shift? You were friends, you were a uh, musician together, playing together. This was in a school when you're in university? No, this is much more recent. We've known each other all our lives. He's a dear friend. We played in rock and roll bands together, had all kinds of adventures. We could always talk about these things. But really, sometime in the 2000s, towards the end of the 2000s, suddenly, conspiracy theories and the websites and that suddenly made an appearance, really. I don't think it was that subtle a transformation. You know, it just happened. It happened to coincide with what was happening on social, in social media and on Fox News, most notably. You know, there was that shift and the American right wing was uh, really behind that, I'm afraid to say. That's, those were all well-funded campaigns. And, uh, and it's only gotten worse since uh, Trump's been in office. That's when Trump was first elected in 2000. Uh, 16 things have really redoubled now and there's uh, it, it just seems to be unstoppable unfortunately so he's Trump supporter no he says no. he's not at all he's not but he he ascribes to the whole ecology of uh, kind of that far-right Trumpism kind of thing the guns the anti-immigration stuff you know it's a whole package deal And that's what you know makes me realize that I think this is all learned behavior because you you'll never find someone who's opposed to guns but yet is a climate denier it's a package deal and it's obvious mm. where that package deal has been coming from and it's very troubling does he have gun himself or it's more in a ideology for him well he's always he's always enjoyed guns and I have to say I was a crack shot in Boy Scouts and But, but it's not the guns. Of course, it's the gun fetishism. The fact that guns are the only thing, he says, that will protect people from the state. Mm. You know, despite all the evidence to the contrary, you're much more likely to kill yourself if you have a gun. But he, he, like everyone, he doesn't see that. And it's part of this ecology. People he talks to, his friends, use the same phrases, talk about the same things. And any one of us could spell out what that package deal of misthinking really is. And that's what we're fighting now. People who are not only committed to one issue, but a whole worldview that emanates from irrational thinking. You know, it's, it's quite scary. Let's say in an hour from now, you learn something new. What would it be? Something about why it's triggering for you, why people are having those kind of conspiracy theories, what or... how to connect with him. Do you want to reconnect th- with him? What would be important for you? 
meaningful. Yeah, I, I have to say, I this question has troubled me for a long time, and I've read an awful lot about it. I think what I am principally interested in now is how we can coexist, you know, in a civilization where people are not listening to one another. And I'm not, I'm not sure it's possible. I, honest to God, the only thing that has made us human is the ability to carry on conversations and learn about the world and then pass that information on to further generations. But if we can't speak rationally about the world and things that are happening, it all falls apart. You know, just like in a relationship, I know as a counselor in the past, it takes two to make a relationship. If one of the parties refuses to participate in decent, rational conversations, refuses to interact and acknowledge the value of another person's opinions or evidence, then everything falls apart. It just can't happen. And this is what scares me now, that political influence is creating classes of people who are immune to reason. You know, and I'm, I'm sorry, reason is non-negotiable. You have to appeal to some common reality. And this has been my thinking all along. You know, to, to try to get along with these people, you have to find something in common. That's what negotiators always do. Find something in common. But if you don't share a basic fundamental belief that the universe is, it can be objectively interrogated. If you don't accept that there's an empirical objective world out there, then all bets are off. Then it just means it's up to whatever your little brain comes up with or whatever's told you. And and people ultimately will not survive. You know, I don't think yeah. little animals would survive in nature if they were so irrational, if they didn't believe that the fox would, in fact, eat them if they were a little bird. You know, it's so fundamental. So I want to learn how, if if it, it's at all possible to coexist with people like this, while they still reject any kind of semblance of reality, you know. And of course, I would never claim to be a great thinker and conversationalist myself, even though I've worked on it all my life. It's a hard thing to do, but we both have to work hard at it. But if one side isn't working hard, what, what do we do? We really feel victimized. Like I said, I feel bullied when someone just shouts their beliefs in my face that COVID is a, a scam or masks are dangerous or whatever nonsense there is. Sooner or later, the only choice I have is to leave the conversation. But we can't really afford to do that with people we love and our families and that. So how do we keep together when we're so far apart? Yeah, that's tough. Because relationship is about two people and everyone contribute something to the conversation or to the relationship mm-hmm. and give something. And mm-hmm. when one side contributes anger and, and something that you disagree with, mm-hmm. you feel stuck. And yeah. Yeah. And, and I think good disagreement. Yes, exactly. Now I'm certainly not against disagreement and passionate uh, discussions. Uh, that's what makes the world go around, but there has to be a common footing. You know, it's, it's the same like in power relationships. If you're going into a conversation in a dominant position of power and you shut out the other person, like a, a junior employee, you know, that's never going to work. But unfortunately, with people's uh, worldviews now, they shut out the whole world if they is, reject the very basis of reality or the basic 
validity of scientific inquiry, you know, there's, there's nothing else to build on. And as the philosopher Immanuel Kant said many times, uh, fundamentally, uh, reason is non-negotiable. Without using a rational approach to conversations and committing to that, we're really not going to make any progress. We're only going to be driven further apart, especially if there are forces in the world, like entrenched powers, that want to drive us apart like they're trying to do with the climate movement, sow seeds of division amongst people, the old divide and conquer, right? Well, I'm afraid if we're really polar, so polarized in our thinking, it's easy to divide us even further. And that's what we're seeing all over the place where, you know, people are literally killing each other over illusions, which is, yeah. I don't want to die because somebody believes in Santa Claus and I don't. I think that's a terrible way to die. So you know, why die over an illusion? But, uh, you know, that's as the great philosopher uh, Bertrand Russell said, uh, to paraphrase, he said, some men, and I, I will leave it at men because it's mostly men, some men would rather die than think. And in fact, many do so. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's... I wanted it's, to ask you, there is a set of things that he's, he's talking about and believing. Is it more about climate for you or everything for you is as triggering and hard to, to hear at the same time? Like COVID and, and Trump and the right wing. And you said also um, anti-immigration. So it's, it's all the same for you? Like it's all packaged or you well, specify the climate more in that? Well, I'm, I'm saying the climate is the primary focus there. But what I'm saying is that it's part of that ecology. And I, I uh, it, you know, it may well not. I've challenged him on this a few times, and he would like to say otherwise. But yeah, it's uh, all those views have come forth, even when uh, Trump was talking about the anti-immigration people, his, his, it slipped out that when he said, uh, yeah, well, it's a good thing they're locking up those kids because the parents shouldn't be bringing them to the border in the first place. Too bad for them. You know, and so that's a little clue, you know, even though he's a family man with lots of kids and he's a great father. So it, but it's, it's the climate change because he, he's an oil site geologist. He works in the oil patch. I should have explained that. And obviously in the Alberta oil patch, it's part of that culture, that tribe. If you're not a denier, you, you might even end up getting beaten up downtown sometimes by your fellow uh, oil patch people. Oh, wow. So it's very important to his identity. And I think this is what makes it so difficult. Uh, these people have been taught all of these conspiracy theories and that, but they've also been taught that that is their identity, their personal identity. And it's not easy to give up your friends and your personal identity from changing your mind. That is a very difficult thing to do. So Garth, you were a counselor? You helped people? Yes, originally, uh, after, after I decided not to be a professional musician, because it didn't pay very well, I did get a job working in an emergency room, because I have a psychology background, as an emergency counselor in an emergency department. So people who were in complete crisis, in a real mental health crisis, would be referred to me by the doctor, so I could spend the time to talk to them, because the emergency doctors are really so busy, they can't sit down with an, for an hour or two. So that really did change my worldview a lot. And those are tough conversations. Wow. But the person is always willing to meet you. And as a counselor, of course, you need that connection. You know, and I, I can't say I ever encountered any kind of 
conspiracy theorists or deniers. The worst I ever encountered would be the odd religious fundamentalist who, you know, had some very strong views, but never held as strongly uh, to the extent as people hold those views now. Can you say more about those people coming in crisis? Anybody coming into emergency uh, with any kind of health problem would be referred to as any kind of any kind of health problem, say they came in for a heart attack. But if the family doctor thought that there was a serious mental health problem, they would refer them to us. And we we saw everybody across the entire spectrum of mental health issues from, you know, chronic schizophrenics, people in terrible uh, states like that, uh, people coming in from domestic violence problems, abused children. And what- so you're saying they're willing to meet you. What do you mean? Are they willing to listen to you? Are they listening to your suggestion? What does it mean? Well, they, they are coming in for help, right? Yes. So uh, I'm the one that's really doing the listening. If I ask questions, and it's up to me to actually just determine fundamentally if they are, first of all, if they're at risk, are they going to make it, are they going to survive to in the next 24 hours? That's number one, you know, is patient safety. So a lot of people would be very suicidal. In some cases, of course, we'd bring them into the hospital. But in all cases, it was up to me to listen. And then, of course, you know, for me, the perfect psychiatric interview is where I wouldn't have to say a word. They'd give me their history, what's going on and everything. But often it's very difficult to try to gain someone's attention, especially if they're very paranoid. And you're part right. of the conspiracy initially. I, I, you know, those were great challenges. But I learned so much. And it's all, you know, listening is so difficult. But in this job, I was forced to listen because it was my job. So you were listening to Is It Dangerous? And when you're listening to someone, you can look for many things, right? You, what else were you looking to hear? A psychiatric assessment is, first of all, asking, finding out why they're there in the first place, what's going on, what their stressors are. And then you want to provide other information for the doc, because uh, you're really just a consultant. You're giving information to the referring physician. That could have been a psychiatrist mm. or a family doctor okay. as well. So you take a mental health history. You take a history of any mental health problems they've had. You, took, you ask about their family and stressors they've had in their lives. You ask about their medical history, because often a mental health problem is a medical problem. And, uh, and, and you really, the, the whole point is to try to be a benevolent interrogator, as I said, you know, you're, you really want them to tell you enough information so you can do the best you can to help them in any way you can possible. So you have to be a really good listener, but you have to gain their, their trust too, because I just assume there's no reason for these people to trust me. They don't know. So you really have to in a very short period of time, get that mutually uh, supportive relationship going and try to maintain that. And I just found it the most uh, remarkable work I've ever done in my life. And so that has informed a lot of my beliefs of about what a good conversation should be, you know, equal parts talking and listening. What kind of trust they need to have to open up to you? I think fundamentally the most important trust is for them to trust that you as a member of the health system 
uh, have their best interest in mind. It's all about them. You know, it's not about uh, me uh, telling the wife what the husband said, or, or it's not me about making a, some kind of quota. It's about me just being interested as a fellow human being, that we're in the same boat. You know, there isn't that distance between us. And most people who are in crisis, mental health crisis, are there because of the situation. You know, we're all just exist at the whim of mother nature and events. We're all in the same boat and we all need each other. So there's a, there is a lot of love behind that. There has to be, you know, it's got to be right in here, you know, and if you feel it, then you don't have to use words to convey that. That's beautiful. So they need to know that you want their best interest. Mm -hmm. And they need to feel underneath the love and safety. Mm -hmm. And then we start to, to open up and share. Mm -hmm. And did you have people uh, with conspiracy theories coming to the hospital? Yeah, that was, more personal stories. That was, yeah, mostly situational issues. Uh, a lot of substance abuse, for example. But often it was just people who uh, had all kinds of bad things happen at once, you know, and it just pushed them over the edge. That's what a crisis is. It becomes so much that your normal coping mechanisms don't, don't work anymore. And the only conspiracy theories I would ever hear would be from a person generally with a paranoid psychosis. Obviously, a psychosis means that you have a problem with your thinking. Your thinking is not translating reality into a form that makes right. sense to you. It's a legitimate illness. And, and those are probably about 1% to 2% of all of society might, uh, be, might experience schizophrenia or similar psychoses. In that sense so it's not terribly common but now nowadays yeah they, there's no comparison with the number of people that believe conspiracy theories now have you heard stories that triggered you you know people that've been been abused maybe and and you hear how unfortunate their life are and yeah stuff like that yeah there you know that's why it's always important to ask the question well why are you here now Because often someone would come in, a real crisis, and I say, well, why, ask, why are you here now? And they would give every reason under the sun. Oh, my wife doesn't love me, or my boss is trying to undermine me all the time. All these legitimate reasons. But of course, they're talking around the issue because it's very difficult. The real issue, issue is that it was, could be that they're drinking too much and their wife threw them out or something like this. Or they got fired the day before, you know, something very yeah. traumatic. And uh, yeah, so you just have to be very perceptive and, uh, but be persistent. It's so important to know what's happening now. I really don't care that the government is annoying you somewhere over there. That's not why you're here today. You're here because you're in crisis and you feel overwhelmed. And I just want to tell the patient, look, if you can get through these few hours of this crisis, you will feel so much better because crises are always time def defined, aren't they? You know, where, and that's another interesting issue, isn't it? Uh, it? Often the people with conspiracy theories today in that act like there's some kind of a crisis, right? There, it's a crisis now, uh, but it's really not a crisis. These are ongoing issues. This is an ongoing ideology they've bought into. So, so I realize I can't approach these conversations quite the same way as I would as right. a clinician. And of course, that right. would be entirely inappropriate for me because when I'm, 
conversing with other per people. I am not therapizing them. I'm not qualified to. And it's insulting to even think that I would try to be, try to do therapy for someone with these weird beliefs. I just want to understand. I want to have an open conversation. So, yeah. so yeah, I've put that therapist side of me to bed a long time ago. I'm, I'm not qualified. I hear you. You don't want to be the therapist. But there are things we can learn from your listening experience that you can use. For example, that you have to build trust to have a good conversation. Um, they need to know that you are in their best interest. Trust is central to the way human societies operate, isn't it? I think we went back 100,000 years and we had a little tribe of 26 people. We would all have to trust each other so much because existence is hard. We can't afford to have somebody going off half-cocked half saying, well, I don't believe that cave bears are a danger to us. You know, that's what that other leader in the tribe said. Don't worry about cave bears, just go and hug, hug one. Well, I don't think that would turn out so well for people. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to dive in and I'll guide you with mindfulness meditation. Find a comfortable place for your body and slowly just observe your breath. something new and this is uh, the intention we want to breathe deep into places that haven't get, got some air before
privacy itself, more of the questions that we have, how we can coexist, what we can do, those questions that are sitting in our bodies. This is the fear, this is the discomfort that we have. So just looking right in the body. Discomfort. And just observing, where is it? just accept that this is what's happening right now we could we can't fight this reality so this is the reality we don't know how to coexist with people right now that think differently and can't accept reason we can't accept our facts and it's very hard and frustrating it's scary observing we want mm -hmm. to see what your body is doing and mm -hmm. might be the connection to the ground the ungroundedness right that mm -hmm. the connection there might, might be so let's just see what's come up from that we actually want to invite wisdom from the body to help us understand more mm -hmm. right we do so much in our brain and we need so much we know and now we can so okay, okay. So what our body saying what's going on because there's deeper layer and deeper wisdom there my body right? is a, a mess my body is a complete mess because of stress and mainly mainly these issues of people communicating it just breaks my heart yeah. i have to say and really i'm i've the thought really came to me too that there's so much sorrow that i get from this inability to communicate 
and looking out across society, it just, it really hurts me at my deepest level. So I guess I just, uh, I love people and I just love it when people get along and when I see conflict like this, systemic conflict, it just, it's, it's devastating to me. I can feel that. Can you let yourself feel this grief and sorrow? too, I guess, fear, sorrow and fear that uh, we as, you know, we humans will not find ourselves in time to, to save us. So don't try to, I see you moving your next, try, try to just let go into that and bring those emotions up, not to make them bigger but just like you know really observe them and allow them because it's often go to how we solve that then we try to intellectualize that and we try to solve and find solution but then we are running away from what we feel and then this whole tension builds up in the body and then we are less clear and less uh, actually rational and we are less capable to find solutions because of so much stress so just like you know really rest in the stress or rest in the tension mm-hmm. just allow it allow it like it's it's there all the time to, so long i have to believe that i'm just sitting on this beautiful island uh, surrounded by seas of stress but i'm i'm fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah the stress is inside not outside <laughs> So stress is in the shoulders and in the toes, and the sorrow is in your heart. Mm-hmm. And now, when you feel the sorrow, the stress is changing. Uh, yeah, it's hard to say. It's like they're different orders of discomfort, I guess. This, the really the, uh, I guess the sorrow kind of envelops everything. Which I hadn't really thought of much before this, so. Yeah, we are so sorry for the thing that we are losing. And we're losing planet and we're losing trees. But at the same time, we're losing those connections with people we shared life for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, isn't that something in an age of the most extreme abundance? We have lost so, so much from nature and each other. It's astonishing. I feel a pain in my heart. Yeah. But then something catches me and I say, well, uh, I'm not in sorrow because we've lost it past tense. I'm in sorrow because we are losing it. And I believe we could get it back so quickly. It's within our capability, but maybe that's more the sorrow that we don't do what's so painfully obvious to uh, make our lives better. So maybe a lot of that sorrow is also a kind of frustration. So the sorrow comes with the anger too. There's an anger. Mm-hmm. Of we're not doing the right thing. We're not doing what we should. 
Yeah, I do have a I do have a lot of anger, and it's uh, uh, yeah, I've been working on that a long time. I mean, I'm not a violent person, but I just I really feel anger, sorrow, frustration, and uh, like they've all been put into a blender. And I've every day I drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, all those uh, emotions have tendencies in our body. There's a feeling and there's those thoughts that are uh, combined to, we should do something and they're just like the anger comes up, right? Mm -hmm. And the feeling, it, this experiencing this is healing. Mm -hmm. When we go back to the mind, I kind of neglecting my body again, neglecting myself even. Mm -hmm. And I think, I believe that if I think that there is maybe something I can do, but right now when we sit here, what we can do is to do the healing work so mm -hmm. then we have more clarity later so just mm -hmm. you know really allow yourself to feel this anger and see what it wants to do maybe your body wants to move maybe you want to punch the, the table maybe there's like mm -hmm. i'm a keyboard player i would never punch anything <laughs> <sighs> no i don't i don't lash out with my anger i guess i just internalize it and uh and uh and yeah but it's uh you know it's also it's the best thing yeah it's if also internalized the, yeah mm -hmm. it's also this belief that i i shouldn't be thinking so much about myself i should be acting and moving and thinking about other people and thinking about the world i guess i say to myself that i've been in mental health so long and studied so much that i think i can i can take it i shouldn't worry about myself that's true i you know i'm uh you know, I could certainly handle stress, but, uh, but, you know, that's an illusion. I, I'm, I'm much weaker than I think I am, I'm sure, like everyone. And what happened when you think that? What happened when you think about, I shouldn't think about myself? What happened in your body? Hmm. Well, I, that's where I get, you know, uh, get energized to act, do something, you know phone up a, your MP, do something, <laughs> you know, send in an op-ed to a newspaper, do something, you know, talk to our climate groups, email a friend, do something, you know. What else does it do? Do something else when you think I shouldn't think about myself? Do you feel yeah, ashamed? Well, well, sometimes, yeah, well, sometimes I, you know, I, I do, I become very self-critical too, saying, yeah, if, uh, if you've been, you know, I tell myself, yeah, if you're really committed to these causes of climate and social justice, then you, you should have started a lot earlier. You should have done this. You should have done that. I'm not saying that's my rational mind, but, but yeah, that, that self-criticism is, is always there. Because of course, none of us have done enough. CO2 keeps going up in the atmosphere. That's the ultimate measure. We, we can't fool Mother yeah. Nature, you know. Yeah. You can't fool the laws of physics. And, uh, but what happened in your body? Is it getting open, tighter, more tension? Uh, more tension. More tension again. More tension again. At the beginning, I was really relaxing, just more as if I, I needed a break. <laughs> 
I, you know, when you realize how much tension your, your physical body and your mind share, that tension and that worry, yeah, that's, that's a lot. On top of a pandemic, for heaven's sakes. Boy, talk about, <laughs> talk about a confluence of nasty things. And I think on an emotional level, too, I've seen, like everyone, I've seen the repeated failures of our systems, especially Western democracies, you know, as compared with many other, compared with the countries that did so well, like New Zealand, I, I feel that incredible frustration that we haven't been able to learn somehow governance isn't working. And then I think, okay, what does this say for the climate crisis? Well, that... Uh, just draws me into a more pessimistic and more frustrated frame of mind. Because I do say evidence is important and you see the pattern of action in our society, the denial, the delay uh, when it came to facing, especially this third wave. And then you realize, well, this is exactly what we're doing with the climate crisis. We're delaying and delaying as long as we humanly can. And unfortunately, I've seen as a crisis counselor, if you fail to accept responsibility for your crisis, and uh, then it's only going to get worse. And sometimes getting worse means life and death getting worse, like with COVID victims. So I say to myself, too, well, Garth, you know, this issue is a lot bigger than you, and it's scary. And there's lots of evil out there. So that means you have to act 10 times as much as you're doing. Nothing you're doing is even touching this problem. So very frustrating and I, I just find my whole body just getting ready to fight fight or flight and more fight than flight I guess <laughs> but then I ask myself is that is is that unnatural is this a pathological response or is this in fact a very normal response for what we're facing I, I do accept it as a normal response I at least I'm not pathologizing myself like you know, I don't beat up on myself for speaking out uh, anymore, I have to say, and which is, which is good, which is a step in the right direction, but, but still, it's never enough. And what am I going to, and again, in my life, I'm 67, time is running out. How much time do I have to uh, be a good ancestor, you know, to make the world a much better place for future generations? My time's almost up, you know, and I guess that's, Kind of the pressure, you know. I haven't had, uh, you know, I've had a number of surgeries in my life too. I have a lot of health problems, but non-fatal ones, just like like arthritis, Crohn's disease, these kinds of things that haven't really bothered me much. But that just underscores, yeah, we're we're all so vulnerable. You know, time is is a gift, and what am I doing with this gift to make it a better world for others? You know, I just I've got to do my best and. Uh, Yeah. So let, let's explore what is, what is your best. What is the best thing that the world needs? I could answer in, in very, how shall I say, in uh, objective terms, or I could answer in, in more metaphorical terms. Uh, well, one, I'll answer and actually more, more they're, it's both rational and metaphorical, but I think what I'm trying to contribute is to get 
all get the entire environmental community to focus on results rather than wishful thinking because there's so much talk about hope and everything and of course hope is important but I, I, I have really internalized some of the things that Greta Thunberg has said because she's she is so she she is the poster child for a poster person for speaking truth to power and she says don't look for hope look for action when you find action there you'll find hope and things like truth is really telling it like it is well i think that's my calling you know because i am probably because i'm a little on the spectrum i i really don't mind saying it like it is and of course it, in the corporate world that's gotten me into trouble all the time but uh I'm not reckless, but you know, this is, this is my calling, I think, is to show people that it's okay to speak the truth. It's okay to ask tough questions and it's okay to demand accountability from the people that we need accountability from, especially in the climate fight. We need accountability from governments and business. So I'm going to keep hammering on that because I just think we're, you know, uh, there's so many ways we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're making progress. But as far as I'm concerned, there's only one measure of progress, and that's what Mother Nature is doing now. And we do know, I have never heard a scientist in my entire life, 30 years of studying the climate crisis, I've never heard a scientist say, well, we have some new research here, and it's not as bad as we thought it was. I have never heard that. It it's is just getting, getting worse. It is getting worse faster. You know, and, and yet we don't act that way. We don't, and those are the simple facts. And I'm, I'm on the side of the best climate science the world has ever produced, all over the world, that's the best. And so I want people to feel a sense of urgency and say, we have to be at the stage now where we're writing actual plans to do this, not just making aspirational pledges to get our, our emissions down 40 to 45% by 2030. It's just a joke. That's, that's a way of fooling us because without a plan, without a project plan, nothing gets done. If you don't have a plan and you just keep saying, I wanna build the nicest house I can afford on the hill, but you never put it into a plan and then suddenly you expect one day the house is gonna build itself. No, you know, we, we are just deluding ourselves. And I think that's my role is to kind of like the little kid in the emperor's new clothes to keep pointing out, look, folks, th this isn't a plan. We need a, not only a plan, a project plan that spells out tasks, timelines, accountabilities, and budgets, and measurable targets. You know, that's the only thing any, any, that's the only way anything gets done. Any big project. Well, this is the right. mega project of mega projects. And now, and now, let's see what what those thoughts does again to your body. Hmm. Well, it's amazing. It's just now I'm just bubbling over with energy. Now I can't relax because here again, you know, I used to be a project manager on some very large projects, so they were exciting, you know. And now I'm actually feeling a little better talking about that, but my body is just full of energy you know where is you know, it it's funny it's all over everywhere the all over mm -hmm. yeah every everywhere my suddenly my hands are going i i do fidget a lot i have to say i'm a fidgeter 
but uh, but yeah, it's but it, it encourages me when I talk that way. It makes me feel better because I know there's so much opportunity. Everybody knows what we need to do to save humanity. It is really remarkable how much we do know. And we, I say humanity, it's amazing yes. how much we know. It's amazing how much we can do. It's remarkable. And yet, with all of this laid out in front of us, we're ignoring it all. It's like a starving man is standing in front of a feast and and he he just does he refuses to smell he refuses to look he refuses to touch the food and he just says no 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 uh, we you know there's nothing worth eating here i'm going to go back and have a mcdonald's hamburger you know that's the feeling i get we're on the verge of creating an incredible society and yet we've never been further away from it at the same time let's see incredible paradox that many, many thinkers have pointed out recently, including many of our top scientists. And yet, you know, the face of conspiracy theories and everything, it's, the attitude is completely the opposite. It's, it's really hopeless. Humanity is really ugly. It's being run by a bunch of people behind the scenes who want to destroy us. They want to take away everything I have. It's I want to pause you here to acknowledge the shift of energy that you're experiencing now. Well, I, I just think I've talked myself into feeling more hopeful as well and more energized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the yin, yin and yang of the world. On one hand, it yeah. seems hopeless. And yet at the very same time, it's full True. of possibility. Just So, Garth, I want to stop you now and shift back to your friends. The, the reason we are here and see how everything you said and everything you experienced until now going to affect your relationship. So let's say you're going to see him tomorrow. What is going to be different? Mm -hmm. Well, I would, you know, I, I, I have this strong feeling right now, a very almost unconscious, but this strong feeling the, of, of saying, Garth, really, you, you don't have evidence to say that you should ever give up on anybody, especially an old friend. You never give up. You know, there's always, always ways of saying, look, we, we, uh, we just won't talk about this. And there's so much else to share in our lives. I mean, we love to play music together. You know, we just, we're just totally in tune. And it just, it really pushes that frustration and that anger and that blame to the side and say, look, you know, I, I don't need that, that anger and that blame and that frustration. That doesn't do anything for me, really. It's a reaction. But uh, what remains is the reality that there's always hope with human beings. Otherwise, why in the world would I have spent most of my career in mental health if I didn't believe that people can change? You know, it's, it, I've seen so much transformational change in my life. And I believe that there is a way that he, he will come around. And, and, and I really think that uh, he can, uh, there's so many easy diplomatic ways for him to get out of that. First of all, with his children, you know, I realize that we're never alone when it comes to dealing with difficult people, right? They have other lives and other angles. We don't have to do all of it ourselves. We don't have to heal a person or change a person ourselves. Like I said, that's almost a little arrogant too, to think that we can do that. 
but he lives in an environment where all his kids are, of course, younger and they believe in climate change. They don't believe him at all. And I think they're really, really frustrated with him too. So I think if I could just start, uh, I've mentioned kids in the past, but if I, if I, I think if I can start bringing up more of that and getting him thinking more of his kids without ever talking about climate, I think maybe just the desire to be a good dad and to finally be remembered as someone who did, who was willing to change their mind uh, for the betterment of future generations would be just a wonderful thing. It's like Ebenezer Scrooge being reborn after the three ghosts. You know, it's, it, it is literally possible. Maybe I am a romantic, but I, like I said, <laughs> I have seen too much transformational change. And I think actually changing our minds is the easiest thing in the world if we're not told that we can't change our minds. And I'm afraid that's what these forces of evil out there who are creating these conspiracy theories and this division. I want to ask you something. Yeah. Now you're looking at him and you're feeling all this, this hope and new possibilities and new ideas of how you can communicate. Mm -hmm. And it's, this, this is amazing. I, I have goosebumps. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining him. I'm channeling him right now and I'm, and I'm feeling mm -hmm. him and, and you're coming to me with this new excitement and say, hey, we can be friends again. And there's like mm -hmm. hope and, and let's do music and let's do that. And I'm kind of excited, but I also feel like you want to change me. Mm -hmm. There is still hope in you that, mm -hmm. to change me, that something yeah. is still wrong with me. Yeah. And I well, feel kind of torn. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, you know. So how it, can we do that? What can we do here? Well, ultimately, uh, I, would, I do want him to change his thinking because I, I, I have to say, sooner or later, if you do agree that there's a rational universe, that there are... Uh, he doesn't. There, it, he doesn't uh, agree. Yeah. Right now, he doesn't. Yeah. Well, the, all I can do is... is uh, all I can really do is hope that, in fact, maybe his kids change him and also his friends. I'm sure he's lost a lot of friends, too. And if I can just... Just focus on friendship and the beauty of friendship. Then there's always the chance he might come around and say, yeah, you know, I think my, what am I getting out of my beliefs when I end up losing friends over it? And I, I don't want to imply that our friendship is over. No, I don't fire people like that unless it's really <laughs> expedient. And, uh, and I think, yeah, maybe the world can change him. Uh, but in the meantime, we, I just have to get him to stop talking about these things and pressing my buttons because I'm not infinitely wise and I, I do react to things. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, uh, I, uh, I have all those weaknesses. So that's what I'm thinking. But I just, when you ask those questions too, I just keep thinking about all the fun we've had in our lives, how close we've been all our lives, how many wonderful experiences we've shared and how conspiracy theories never entered into our relationship. They didn't do any good for anybody, you know, in the past. No. They didn't exist. We didn't believe in those things. So, you know, it's a fairly recent thing. So if it's come up fairly recently, chances are it could be changed fairly, fairly quickly too, you know. It's not written in stone. It's not like we've grown up in an in a evangelical Christian family and aren't able to break out. These are things that can change. The mind can change very easily. 
but it's not going to be me that changes it. In fact, just reacting to me, I think I may even make it worse for him. I probably even make him dig in his heels even more because he sees me as this lecturing guy that's uh, always quoting the evidence of that. So I realize I can look pretty obnoxious when I do that. So what I hear from you, I hear is that you're kind of reprioritizing friendship uh, and connection over over disagreement yeah yeah very well put yeah it's caused that shift yeah there are a few issues that trump friendship the only things that trump friendship are danger if the person is violent or there's the person is engaging in risky behaviors that can hurt you or other people That's, of course, where we have to draw the line. I would never egg somebody on, for example, to, uh, to take their gun and go downtown and fire off a few people to get their attention. <laughs> you know, I would never uh, recommend that. But as long as we're safe, as long as we're respectful, then what's an, what's an odd eccentricity, you know? We all have, have that, you know, eccentric uncle in our families, for example, that comes home for a family meal and talks all kinds of nonsense. Well, we can tolerate that. It's not important. But when it comes to, this is the dilemma though. When it comes to climate change, this is uh, undoubtedly the greatest issue ever facing humanity in the long term. You know, and so just to, this is where the harm comes in. By him joining the chorus, he's, uh, he's acting on behalf of the fossil fuel companies and the politicians who want to stop climate action. And so how far do you go there? Sure, he's just one person, right? He's not in politics. He has no influence. But, you know, then you think, well, if I let this person do that and then the next person and the next person, all I'm doing is letting bullies get their way. And that's not very good either. So, Well, let's say it's complicated, you know, I, I yeah, it, it's complicated. I do value friendship above most things, but you always have to draw the line somewhere. And that's for the, the greater good, I guess. So it's complicated. It's beautiful to watch your process and your heart is open up to him and you feel with all those memories and renewed hope for your relationship. But then you're being in your rational mind again, and the conflicts come up again. And it's like there is uh, this inner conflict between mind and heart, and each one pulls to a different direction. Yeah, absolutely. All of yeah. the above is true. Uh, even going back to uh, Sigmund Freud, you know, there are so many conflicts. And in psychology, we used to talk about these double binds, you know. A double bind is, is this where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And yeah. of course, all of these things come into play. I guess in my mind, what I'm really searching for is not a magic bullet. It's just reconfiguring the balance. There's always a balance of frustration that one feels with a friend and a loved one. I mean, this is the nature of love, isn't it? There's always tension. You know, there's violence and love and tremendous care. There's all these oppositional things. Uh, emotions that come with love and there have been uh, 
at least uh, a billion movies made about them <laughs> and yes. it's the human condition. But I, I just think, you know, it's the balance, how you hold those things in a rational balance in your mind. So one thing doesn't take over the other, you know, and we have to, I think maybe we have to live with those contradictions as all humans have had to. My God, you know, the ancient philosophers and ancient Greeks, they wrote about these things. Don't go to those uh, yeah. <laughs> lectures. <laughs> yeah. What, what you're saying is very important. I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the balance between how much tension you hold in your body, how much you can open your heart to people that disagree with you, that you love them, mm-hmm. and still act upon what you believe. You know, mm-hmm. you want to act, you want to make those phone calls to the NDP, mm-hmm. you want to be in those co- committees, and you don't let him say something wrong, you will send him the right article to, to say, this is the truth. But mm-hmm. you don't want to close your heart. When you do that, you get all the tension, and you're mm-hmm. getting sicker, and you don't function better. And it doesn't support the climate That's when true. you have all this yeah. tension. So I have to find my motivation to act but I don't want it to be from anger and tension. Mm-hmm. When I do that, I am contributing to damage too. Exactly. It's, you know, it, exa- I, I, I agree with your description of the, the, the inner landscape there. It's all kinds of different things. I, I can think of, uh, I just suddenly, it's funny, as soon as, when you were saying that, uh, kind of from my subconscious, I, I clicked into this metaphor of uh, the computer screen, right? We're busy people, right? We always have, or, or busy people who are, I'm re- sort of retired, uh, but if you're busy, like busy. Wife, yeah. you have all these different programs open on your computer at the same time, right? Your desktop is all cluttered. I just thought, what's the psychic equivalent of closing all those programs before you engage with a friend of yours? We have all these internal programs, like you said, the frustration program, this program, all the ways we learn to react to a situation. It's complex. Uh, And that's the beauty of meditation, isn't it? It, I think it shuts down a lot of those little programs running in your head. You know, with a computer, what's often so annoying is programs automatically start when you boot up your computer, right? And you don't want those programs. You don't, you don't want them, but they automatically start up every time. Maybe that's a good metaphor yeah. for the way we react. So, so you know. Automatically. Uh, yeah. We, uh, our intuition always has these things running. If we could just empty some of that, then we could come without all that baggage of other programs running and just encounter the person as they are. It, especially with the fond memories in that, that, you know, that's a good program to keep running because that grounds you in the world. But what has really happened between the two of us? That stuff happened. Now, I know memory is unreliable, but the good stuff happened, you know? Why should I have all these images about global catastrophe going on and COVID and all these things in the background without knowing it? We, we transfer those emotions to the human contact, don't we? We know if somebody's had a really bad day at work, some, you know, or your spouse comes home, they've had a bad day, you, you know, you're not going to bring up a, a lot of issues uh, just to, that'll make you know will make them even angrier, right? You kind of try to de-escalate everything. And maybe that's the wisdom. How does one de-escalate their, uh, all those programs running in the background 
in their brains when we're dealing with another person uh, who's special to us. You know, we can clearly maybe clear the field a lot easier. And uh, and again, you know, if we're going to feel frustration, it's better that we feel it directly from the person rather than reacting then uh how shall i say then projecting that frustration onto another person when it's entirely inappropriate maybe i'm frustrated because uh, of a tax problem or something well i don't want that kind of frustration projected on a person and you know that's how we can misunderstand each other so often in conversations we think somebody's mad at us, but no, what the, they're just really tense about something else. And uh, I just want to close down all those problems because I, I have to say, I, when it comes to thinking, I, I think a lot. I'm always <laughs> ruminating about something. And uh, I can't, that's the way I am. I can't help it. It's just, it's natural and I think it's a good thing. But all those stupid programs running in the background that I don't need that are only interfering with what I really want to do. So does that kind of make sense? That's, that's beautiful. That's, that makes sense. And that's also very profound. Hmm. It's oh, very profound thanks. because it's, oh, I, cool. I think this is what happened. Like we have all this background and mm-hmm. what is trigger? Uh, trigger is like our raw spot. It's my mm-hmm. fears. It's my, it's my stuff. It's my baggage, yeah. right? I'm carrying yeah. it. This is the programs. It's a, you know, they're open. And then you say something and automatically I am angry about you because you said you, you mm-hmm. did something that made me feel all my feelings that I already have them. Mm-hmm. So if I can separate that and say, okay, this is my stuff. I'm afraid of the world. I'm afraid of what's going on. And this person, he doesn't understand that, but I can, I can co- maybe communicate with him that mm-hmm. when he said that, this is very scary yeah. for me. And I feel disconnected because he doesn't feel me. And I want you to maybe feel me in this moment. Just like feel mm-hmm. that I'm afraid when you say that I feel this connection, but it's not that I want to stop and leave the connection. I don't want to let go and mm-hmm. delete this person. I want to stay. Mm-hmm. But I want to stay with what's really happening. And what's really happening is my feeling is it's not the background. And now, like you said, like projecting on him, what's happening with me. Yeah. And, this and, is, and that's profound. That that's that's uh, what you said is, I, I just uh, think is so true. And, and, you know, I guess when you think about it, it's really part of a lot of traditions for people too. I think this does come naturally because how many societies say that it's important to be present in the here and now when we're yeah. dealing with other people. Not bringing all this baggage, but you know, and I'm afraid uh, this is, this doesn't seem to be a society where I can be present a lot. There's so many distractions. And in fact, they're, they're purposeful distractions. They're called advertising, propaganda. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't drive down a street without being hit by dozens of messages, right? Flashing at you. We are the most distracted humans to have ever lived (laughs) like what do they say we get hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of messages every day through media and even if we don't even just talking to people you know we get these messages all the time and uh it's kind of like theft of our ability to be present it's yeah society steals that from us we have to get that back you know we can of course we can get that back but it's so hard to ignore that stuff and that, that's why meditation is, is really so good. I'm just kind of thinking anytime I, I know I'm seeing uh, someone like that or I'll be at a contentious meeting, if you can try to empty the brain a bit from all of that racket that we have going on in there, 
just before that, empty it up. I'm wondering if that would, if that would be of, of benefit. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. When we try to empty and we have lots of, of thoughts, we are yeah. resisting to what is. Exactly. But what we can do, so not to feel the resistance and not to mm-hmm. fight with ourselves, is to connect to the body. So you connect with, to the breathing or to the, mm-hmm. your legs or whatever feels grounding. And then you actually empty your mind without mm-hmm. pushing away thoughts. They're oh, kind that's of, true. You know? It's so true. Well, yeah, that's what I learned in Transcendental Meditation, right? I remember one phrase that really stuck with me. You know, you're fighting. When you're learning meditation, you're fighting your brain to say, oh, stop that thought. And they always tell you, don't fight it, you know? But this one image stuck in my mind. Imagine that your descent into that transcendental state is like a leaf falling slowly in still air. You know, when a big leaf falls, it just kind of goes down like this, you know? Yeah. And just try to imagine all those thoughts, letting go, just letting those things fall away. (laughs) Garth, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. Mm. Well, this was great. Oh, it's amazing how much we touched on. Yeah. I'm sorry for if, if I, I talk too much. I always get enthusiastic. But no, your meditation was very helpful, very interesting. It really it did clue me into uh, to some of the things that I have to have to clue into. Because, you know, it's we're actually, you know, in many ways, let's, you know, and without being grandiose, this is a turning point for humanity. Maybe if there are historians that survive yeah. 500 years from now, they'll look back and say, I wonder what those people thought when they were going through this. They were at the point where all of humanity was on a knife edge and they pulled it off. What were they thinking? You know, and I'd like to think that maybe uh, I'll think of this conversation in the future. And say, I, I want to ask you just what... what one thing you said how can we coexist when people don't listen to each other mm-hmm. can you answer that now how can we coexist uh, well that's it depends how we define coexist i guess we could certainly Fine. coexist but uh where we don't talk to each other like many families who fire each other or but I, I think, uh, yes, I think, you know, this sounds so corny, but, you know, we can always coexist if we really have that, that love, that unconditional regard for other people. You know, if we can all do that, we can believe things. We can root for, the, for different hockey teams. We can believe different things. We can have different religions. But if we, if we let that basic humanity of us, uh, that we all possess come to the top. We can coexist. We can hate each other on one level, but at the same time, we say, "Yeah, we coexist." And actually, I think nature probably has the best. Mother Nature has the best lessons for us. Can I just tell you a little story? We have raccoons, lots of raccoons out here, and you know, raccoons—they are in fascinating creatures. But I have to, I love them. They're so intelligent. There is so much going on in there. 
well, I'm kind of funny. I talk to animals a lot and I really believe <laughs> we're communicating. I feel that kind of love for all life forms. But, you know, we've had this issue where we've had to tra trap some raccoons and live release them elsewhere. We've had somebody come in and do that. But, you know, I, it's made me think we have to coexist with all of nature. We're the ones, who, the upstarts that are taking away their territory. Um, uh, you know, we're always the intruders. We're the invasive species. We've got to learn to live with each other. And so what if the raccoons steal a neighbor's gardening glove and then put it on our step to show us that they did that? They are such scamps, but they have, it's made me think, they have their own little life every day. They have, in the evenings, of course, they're mainly nocturnal. They have the same little route where they march through our house. They play together on a certain section of our deck in the back. And I hear them thumping around, they wrestle around, they have fun, and they uh, often they have the young ones, and I'm, we're gonna be seeing some young ones. I think they have meaningful lives, and to them, that's their whole life. They spend their whole days in their lives, just like us. You know, life is hard for all of us. We all have to get along in this world we found. Climate is all of us. Nature is all of us. We're part of it. And I, I have to say, those raccoons have taught me so much about what it's like to coexist with beings who really have a sense of humor and want to get you your goat once in a while, you know? But, you know, they, they have to be treasured as living beings. They're the most successful of their kind in history, just like we are. We're the survivors. After a billions of years of evolution, it's us. We're supposed to be the best. We have to coexist. We have to accept each other. And that includes conspiracy theorists too. Oh. <laughs> I, might prefer, I might prefer the company of raccoons, but yeah. that's neither here nor there. <laughs>